as this is an interview that was conducted on Zoom, so please be patient with a slightly lower audio quality than you're normally used to. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Supplemental. Putting the Logos back in logic. Professor Ryan Haker on Origins Trinitarian Logic. Welcome to a very special episode of The Road to Nicaea. As we have walked down the long and winding path towards a 4th century Trinitarian consensus, we have yet to leave behind the shadow of Origen of Alexandria. You may remember Origen from the first few months of the podcast. He was that titanic figure of the early church who refuted pagan critics, invented whole new fields of study, and defied his bishop with his sheer brilliance. Today, I'm very lucky to be joined on the podcast by a contemporary scholar of origin, Professor Ryan Haker. Dr. Haker is currently serving as a fellow at the American Academy in Rome and previously has worked at the University of Texas, Austin. Dr. Haker recently completed a PhD at the University of Cambridge studying under Rowan Williams. In it, he argues that Origen's account of logic has a fundamentally theological orientation and that his theology of logic has a Trinitarian foundation. Dr. Haker argues that Origen is a model for how Christians can think of reason and logic in our own day. His dissertation is due to be published, and you will be able to find it wherever academic theology is sold. He's also working on a volume on New Trinitarian Ontologies. Dr. Haker, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Benjamin. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Yes, yeah, a great pleasure to have uh, you with us as well. So you having done some recent work on origin, um, I'd love to just dive into the meat of it. Um, and I wanted to start kind of with origin's context. You know, you spend a fair bit of time in your work talking about his philosophical influences, especially the Neoplatonism that is gaining currency really in his life. You know, it's sort of happening contemporaneous with, with origin's development, coming about from a renewed interest in Pythagoras and Plato, uh, which creates this really interesting intersection of philosophy and theology in origin. You know, people will talk about how origin is always reading the Platonists. He teaches philosophy to non-Christian students. Um, and on the other hand, the vast majority of his corpus is, is commentaries on scripture, right? Um, he doesn't leave behind a lot of purely philosophical discourses. And as we think about the role of logic in origin's thought, how should we be thinking about the relationship between theology and philosophy for him, especially with relation to the Trinity? Yes, Origen has often been accused of having been influenced in a very malignant way, perhaps by the Platonists and by pagan philosophy more generally. And this accusation has spurred generations of critics to suggest mm -hmm. that Origen was less Christian than he seemed, that he, for instance, he simply adopted the rhetoric of Christianity to conceal a kind of philosophical core that undermined the, the radical transformation of that philosophy by the gospel and the message of Christ. Now, I have argued, and uh, generations of scholars have attempted to argue and to rehabilitate Origen, that there is a searching reflection not just on how it is that the gospel can, as it were, be interpreted in a more philosophical register, but also even how the categories of Greek philosophy can be transformed by the message of the gospels, and in particular how 
the key ideas in the gospel, such as like Sophia, Logos, Aletheia, Photos, mm-hmm. Zoe, these terms assume a new significance that have their indelible mark and enunciation within the gospel that orients how we are meant to interpret them, how we're meant to scrutinize the reception of Greek philosophy, and also how we can make arguments on behalf of them that will give them life in a way that is continuous with the church. So the old controversy that goes, I think, back to von Harnack called the Hellenization thesis about whether Christianity became corrupted by Greek philosophy, I think is a misnomer for two reasons. One, that we observe already in Hellenistic culture certain influences from the East, from from different uh, religious movements, from their own religious movements, and ways that we can't sort of entirely exercise. So, for instance, we can't say, for instance, that that Greek philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, were not in some way shaped in, in responding to the Eleusian mysteries or other other occultic rites that pervaded their time. Nor can we say that that even the Bible wasn't influenced by by currents of Greek philosophy. It's well known now that there are Homeric and, and um, Platonic influences in in Second Temple Judaism and in the Pauline Corpus and throughout the the New Testament. And for that reason, also, we can't, um, we shouldn't be suspicious, or we shouldn't um, entirely want to separate the the wheat from the chaff of Greek philosophy and Hebraic influences in the early Christian apologists, much less Origen of Alexandria. What I think makes Origen and, and to another extent, Clement very exciting in this regard is that they are deliberately attempting to fuse these traditions without, as it were, compromising their integrity. That is, they're trying to take the spoils of the Egyptians, as they call it, from the the treasures of Greek philosophy, which both recognize as the gift of the logos in Greek culture, and find a way to to recast it in a Christian mold, and also ultimately to convey it in a way that can be taught for the purposes of expounding the teachings of the gospel. So in On First Principles in particular, what we have is an attempt to to change the genres of um, periochron literature, that is the literature of the first principles of metaphysics, of intelligibility and being, into one in which we can expound the, the highest principles of the Christian theology, namely the divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and thereafter of the holy powers, the angels, and the creation of the worlds, and ultimately of the Christian community that grows up within it, and how the Christian life can be lived out in expectation of imitating these higher principles and holy powers, how we can become like them. And in doing so, we draw continuously from the revelatory deposit that is given to us in Scripture, that is performed by the lives of the saints, and ultimately one that has to be celebrated amongst the, the Christian community as it is continuously reperformed or reinterpreted. And all of this, I think, means then that whatever elements of Greek philosophy have come to origin of Alexandria, he believes that their truth resides ultimately in as far as they can proclaim and they can serve the purposes of the gospel in the Christian life. So um, in regard to the criticism that he was, as it were, less than platonic, he attempts to show against Chelsus that he is following, as it were, more to the hidden spirit of platonic philosophy. He's showing that that the truth of Platonism, as, as he regards it, the truth of the gospel, and that it becomes true in as far as it's recast within this Christian mold. So he doesn't ultimately see there to be a conflict between these. He sees, as it were, the, the glory of the Greeks as shining through the glory of Revelation, ultimately, as it's, it's um, radiated through the lives of the saints in the Christian community. And so I, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you know, I think you're saying a couple things. I think first that, you know, the idea of any simple division between philosophy and theology is, you know, is probably something to be resisted. You know, I sometimes think about, um, you know, Christians today who read the Bible after the Copernican revolution, you know, you read in Joshua about making the sun stand still. Well, we'd say, you know, we live in a, in a heliocentric worldview, um, and so we automatically interpret that scripture saying, oh, well, you know, this is a phenomenal thing going on where God just changes perception or God stops the earth in its rotation, you know, however you do. But what we don't do is assume, oh, well, the sun is just this disc moving in the sky. 
Um, and, you know, we assume that for entirely um, non-biblical reasons, right? Like that's just about Copernicus and science. But would we be accused of importing, you know, modern philosophical or scientific conceptions into Christianity as a result of that? Or is that just what it means to be a Christian living um, in modernity? And I sometimes well, that's wonder a question if you that could... That's a question that Orkjin could have certainly asked for himself. The reason for this is that he notably observed that there were many, many uh, enigmas, as he called them, or uh, confounding statements in scripture that, that couldn't mm -hmm. be true, that appeared to be impossible. And in finding these, he was called to look for a way to understand them differently. And this this reflection upon a different way of thinking about them is a search for what people have called an other story or an allegorical interpretation. Now, one of the ways in which we can find this impossibility is if, as it were, a statement in a scripture appears to be contrary to natural reason or what we know about the natural world. And even in Origen's time, there were new discoveries about the natural world that he was aware of. So, for instance, he, he cites stellar parallax, which is a way of observing the distance of stars that was, I think, uh, current and, and recorded by, um, by Ptolemy, the, the, the astronomer, in his time in Alexandria. And he seems to have been aware of some of the scientific developments that he probably learned as, um, as he was teaching many courses in Greek philosophy. And I don't imagine that he would be so shocked if, for instance, after the discovery of the ages of the Earth or of the evolution of species, that we have similar mm -hmm. questions about how it was that the chronology of Genesis could fit neatly into a modern natural scientific horizon. Now, with that said, um, the, the way in which Origen tends to answer these is not simply based on, as it were, something extraneous to scripture or to the theological right. tradition. He ultimately wants to find what he calls the mystical economy of the logos, the hermeneutical archetypes that pervade scripture, and they're ultimately shown to us as they're meant to be communicated from the logos through the holy powers, the church, the saints, and other sources that are current within the Christian tradition. So although the, you might say, the one horn of the dilemma of an interpretation of these passages can arise from the world that we observe and the world that we know, nonetheless, the, the ultimate answer to them must be from an invisible source that is current within the Christian church and, and shown for us in our lives. Right, sort of in the material of the Christian faith, we have both the text and the key to interpret the text, as it were. And as we as we think about, you know, these questions of interpretation and logic, you know, you describe Origen as creating the first Christian theology of logic. And you take that term, theology of logic, and you make a couple of distinctions. So you say it's not what we might think of as purely philosophical argu um, arguments and purely philosophical logic, rather. Um sort of rule of argument, you know, I think of things like the law of non-contradiction, you know, the same thing can't be both A and not A in the same time and in the same respect, or the rule of the excluded middle. Um, so that's philosophical logic. And then there's also practical logic, which is sort of using those philosophical rules to reach particular conclusions in a given science. And you want to say that theology of logic is something different from both of those. So what exactly is theology of logic about? Yes, what I argue is that in Origen's commentary on his, the Song of Songs, he schematizes three sciences, the science of physics, ethics, and what he calls the apoptic, or the invisible science, uh, literally more than visible, that concerns the, the mystical economies and the invisible powers, ultimately the first principles. And this, this highest or apoptic science, um, although he has many names for it, can today be called theology, as it concerns as the arguments we would give for God, Theos, or, and so on. And in as far as he does not claim that logic is a fourth science. He denies that. And he also does not claim that it's a separate science. And a separate science, we might understand to mean following Aristotle, but even today, that it has an axiomatic foundations that is, that is its own ground of understanding that is separate from the other sciences. 
He rather mm -hmm. says that logic is intertwined with all of the other sciences, that it provides the rational part of the sciences. It gives us a reason for understanding why they should be so. So in as far as it's intertwined with the sciences, and all of the sciences are meant to culminate in the apoptic or the mystical science of theology, he presents here a logical way of approaching theology and also a theological grounding for logic. And this is key. In beginning with Aristotle, there is a distinction between formal logic and the material logical semantics of natural language. And following Leibniz, there's a distinction between the pure algebraic mathematical forms of logic and the sort of indifferent remainder of the content of our knowledge. And what has followed from that is that ever since Gottlob Frege and Wilfred von Ormond Klein, we tend to think of logic as though it's a purely formal enterprise of analyzing the mathematical logic that would give a kind of rigorous analysis of the semantic content of natural language. Mm -hmm. All of this, I think, is resisted by Origin of Alexandria in a very profound way. And the reason for it is that for him, the form of logic is never something that is entirely independent of its metaphysical grounding in the divine logos and mm -hmm. the logos of Christ as it's been communicated in the creation of the world from the incarnation and through the incarnation, the revelation that pervades and gives life to the Christian church. Moreover, in as far as logic has to be answerable to and has to be used ultimately for central topoi, which is the interrogation of scripture, the way that logic is used also related to its material contours of the life of the Christian church that is articulated in scripture and, and, and based on interpretation of it. That is, that both the, the ultimate ground of logic as well as the way in which it's used is related to Christ's logos, to the creation of the world, to the articulation of that relation in scripture, and ultimately for the purpose of the Christian life that is meant to be animated by that very interpretation. And so we might say that what distinguishes theology of logic from a purely philosophical approach is that we're not simply asking about the pure forms of logic, as though they were entirely separate from matter or the content of rhetoric and the speech that we use to describe ourselves in our world, but rather that it concerns the uh, kind of revelation through creation and through the continuity of those powers of the ultimate ground, the purpose for which it's used, and the, 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 the way that that use shapes the world in which we live and, and, and act and breathe. And for this reason, the theology of logic is, is both more general and more specific than a philosophy of logic. It's something that, as it were, asks the more absolute and mythic questions of the originary ground and purpose of logic, while at the same time, I think, being more intimate in that it grasps at the, the contours of our life and the way that, that logic is, is intertwined with our understanding and our, our, the way that we negotiate the world in which we live. So in many ways, you know, if you think about logic not as a formal science, but almost as kind of a tool undergirding all of these different sciences, then theology of logic asks questions about like, why is this? You know, why is this such as it is? You know, it's one thing kind of in modern logic, what's often done is, you know, to sort of write down these kinds of logical premises in an almost mathematical formula. You know, if X and Y are indiscernible and X has property A, then Y also has property A. You know, Z cannot be both B and not B at the same time. But to mm. say, why is there, why does this underlying structure of reality seem to be such that, um, you know, that these things are true is kind of the deeper question. If I'm Exactly. If I'm so you. it asks the higher question that is not answerable within a purely hypothetical formal system. So mm. if all logic begins with certain positive assumptions about the rules and functions of logic, as well as the symbolic forms that we use to manipulate them, then it takes for granted its ultimate tools and the elements with which it works. It doesn't have any way of ultimately explaining why those tools should be the way they are. And it also 
raises a challenge that is current in contemporary philosophy of logic as to the apparent contingency and alterity of the forms of logic we can choose. Mm -hmm. So if yeah. there's not simply one form of logic, but many, or if there's a revisibility to our ultimate logical assumptions, then it seems as though logic is much more fluid than a fixed and foundational system, and one that moreover can be adaptable for different human ends, even ends that are religious in character. Mm -hmm. And um, just on that note, I wanted to briefly uh, segue to the second part of this, which is that Origin doesn't just schematize logic as something that is intertwined with all the sciences and culminating in the mystical or the apoptic science of theology, but he also shows us how logic should be used for the purposes of Christian theology in mm -hmm. three great works. One is On First Principles, uh, that is Periarchon in the Greek or De Principis in Latin, which is arguably the first comprehensive work of Christian and systematic theology. And um, we'll say more about that in just a minute. And the second is in the commentary on the Gospel of John, which he presents as the the first fruit of the Gospels, and for that reason, the first of the biblical commentaries that shows us how we should begin to interpret the Bible from the mm -hmm. top to the bottom. And the last is in Contra Chelsum, where he uses those forms of logic, these systematic assumptions, and these exegetical bases of scripture to contest the criticisms that have been made against Christianity by Chelsea. So he presents mm -hmm. logic in, you might say, three registers here. One is systematically, how is we should expound and teach Christian theology. Second, exegetically, how we should use it to analyze scripture. And third, in an exterior way, how we should use it to defend Christianity from its critics. You know, as you shared with that too, part of you know the, the form of logic that's going on here is ultimately grounded in the logos, right? This sort of second person of the Trinity, which, you know, it's it's no surprise that Origen picks the Gospel of John as the first fruit. Of, you know, in the beginning was the Logos, first, you know, ente arcade Logos, right? Like first sentence in the Gospel to make this point. So, I mean, you know, Origen is is not the first person to see this link between logic and Logos, though, you know, he does, as you say, sort of describe it in a way um, that really it runs through all of all of his um, all of his writings, and particularly in those three major works, two of which, the Periarchon and the Contrachelsum, Dear listeners, you should be familiar with from previous episodes. Um, now, you talk about this being a kind of Trinitarian logic. So we've got the logos in there. What role do the Father and Spirit have to play in, in this logic? Oh, yes. So one of the contentions about Origen is whether he had a robust Trinitarian theology. And part of the reason is comes after Origen, which is that his writings would be used by both Arius and Eusebius, among the Arian faction and by Gregory Nanzianzas and Gregory of Nyssa in the Cappadocian faction after the Council of Nicaea for and against, as it were, what became the orthodox doctrine of uh, Nicene Cappadocian Trinitarian theology. And many people have said in the past that Origen is also a subordinationist, which is to say that he believes that there is a kind of top-down hierarchy of the principles and powers sending from the Father to the Son to the Logos to the Spirit. And at one point, he does indicate that the spirit is, as it were, a product of the logos, suggesting that there's the spirit is subordinate to the son, and perhaps the same way the son is subordinate to the father. Now, with all this said, uh, it's very, it becomes difficult at that point to say that Origen is a sort of Christian Trinitarian theologian that could be the provide the principles for a Trinitarian theology of logic. I think we can do two things in this regard. One, we can look at Origen and find these divergent trajectories in his thought that he, because he came before the Council of Nicaea, didn't need to reconcile for himself. That is, he often, oh, for instance, with regard to the Logos as the generator of the spirit, he says on the one hand that the spirit, I think, proceeds or it 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 it, it answers to the Logos. I'm not exactly sure what, um, but he also later will, when he describes the absolute incorporeality of the Arche or the principles, he will list the the Son and the Spirit. He won't list the Logos. So there's a sense in which the, the Spirit proceeds and 
some sense from the Logos, but there's also another sense in which it's not co-equal with the Logos or it's not affirmed in the same way as the Logos. I think there's room for argument in both directions for this and also the reason why it was a sort of fruitful source of divergent views. That being said, I believe we can look back upon Origen and find the traces of what would become Trinitarian theology in his thought in a way that he expressly affirms. He uses the word triados and trias to talk about the three principles, and he speaks of them cooperating in every act of creation, and he speaks of them as absolutely incorporeal, that is, of um, in no sense um, are they are they descending in any kind of great incorporeality or diminishment in power and being. Now, with all that said, the key to a Trinitarian view of logic is that the forms of logic must be grounded metaphysically in the Logos and must be communicated by the Son through the Logos in such a way that the internal operations and relations of the divine persons are also continuous with and give shape to the forms of logic. Mm -hmm. So if you were to have a purely secular view of logic or one that is founded upon a purely philosophical and a priori reflections on the forms of thought, then you would not begin with revelation, you'd not begin with the the, um, the incarnation of the Son, for instance, in Christ, you wouldn't begin for that reason with a Trinitarian view. But if one adopts a, a more mythic and theological interpretation of logic, whereby we have to ask where do these forms come from and how to understand the continuity of creation of the world, then we can answer that by answering in a Trinitarian register that the forms of logic are grounded in the Logos as communicated by the Son, and through the Son, also communicated through the circuits of the interior relations of the Trinity, such that the forms of logic always reflect this triadic movement of the divine persons in every sequence of their operations. And this also interestingly allows for a critical reinterpretation of the history of logic and its present importance. One mm -hmm. thing you can say is that if there's a metaphysical grounding to the forms of logic, then those forms are not, as it were, um, indifferent to their ground. They, they, they are the consequence of it, and, and they bear a resemblance to that from which they come, such that if the forms of logic proceed from the Trinity, then they should have a kind of indelible triadic imprint in them, in their operations. And I think we can even find this in Aristotle's, Aristotle's categories, when, for instance, he divides the fundamental elements of logic into things that can be said for themselves or for another, and in the ways in which what can be said for another is also said um, in relation to what it is of oneself. And this subsequently in the various division of the elements of logic into subject and predicate, or into uh, major and minor premises and into the various forms of syllogism. It becomes a bit more difficult when we speak about modern mathematical logic because mathematical logic following the Stoics, following Leibniz, and following Gottlob doesn't appear to have any internal relation between its algebraic elements. That is, mm -hmm. the an algebraic function, for instance, or a discrete quantity doesn't appear to have any relation to something other than itself apart from its own uh, numerical distinctiveness. Now, with that being said, that, that assumes um, that also, and I think can be contested for this reason, that the forms of mathematics are sui generis, that, that they don't have any higher origin, that they don't originate in the activity of counting or in the activity of argument that is involved in counting. So one of the aims of my project is to show that, that there, is a, there is a deep internal relationship between mathematical logic and the forms of the syllogism that are presented by Aristotle in the ancient world and in another way in the dialectical syllogism Hegel in the modern era, and that each of these authors are in different ways finding a way to integrate the forms of mathematical logic, whether they be ancient Stoic logic or the um, Leibnizian or Fregean logic in the modern era, into a syllogistic format in which those internal relations become more apparent and they can bear a Trinitarian imprint. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you remind me of um, 
a paper I read about Sergius Bogatov and some of his theology of, of logic and grounding it in a kind of Trinitarian sort of subject predicate copula, um, you know, that this, this sort of a move, which if I understand you right, is sort of saying it's like, well, you know, we can say sort of if X and Y are indiscernible, then if X is A, then Y is also A. And if you ask why, well, the kind of raw math mathematical answer is, well, because, because it is like, it's just a sort of unquestionable primitive axiom, as opposed to saying, you know, the fact that the fact that these two sort of things that are indiscernible or identical have identical properties is, you know, that that is in some way grounded in the inner life of the Trinity, you know, the consistency of the persons. Um, perhaps one might even, you know, be so bold as to say, like, the unity of substance, you know, that um, such that we can say, you know, if the Father and the Son are both divine, then they both are omnipotent, all-powerful, good, light, you know, and I'm I'm sort of talking in a Cappadocian mode um, more than an Origenian mode when I say that, but is that the does that sort of capture some of what you're discussing? Yes, I think so. Oftentimes we assume that the forms and functions of logic or of mathematics are entirely opaque and uh, they produce, as it were, one outcome. They're described as monotonic in the sense that one consequence will follow from them invariantly depending on their use. And this is, mm -hmm. of course, one of the great distinctive and virtues of mathematics and logic that it can be used in such an express and invariant way across multiple avenues. So this is, you might call this the 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 perfect formalization of logic and mathematics. And we use this just like we use, for instance, a, a perfect tool, like, for instance, a diamond-edged saw to cut sort of without remainder, without any change in its operations over and over again. But I think there's a higher question about where these forms come from and why did we choose them and in what they're used for. That is, I think there's a question not just about where the tool, how, what tools we use, but also about how in using the tools, we change who we are and we change the world with them. Mm -hmm. And if we look at it in that more, that more, you might say, reciprocating sense or, or that more reflective sense, then it appears that there are no forms that are indifferent to matter. There's no way in which we, we can change the world without also being changed by it. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, then, there's a greater question about the grounding and purpose of these tools that can't be, that can't be answered entirely by their, their direct and invariant operations. Right. And it's for that reason also that I think that there's an opening to a, a reinterpretation and a critical rethinking of the tools of mathematical logic and indeed the entire logical tradition. And in a way also that points back to its source and its higher purpose and ultimately to, as you might say, the unity of substance from which everything proceeds and to which everything finds its purpose. And in that sense, logic is, in as far as it contemplates invisible forms, and it does so in relation to everything, it's a much more mystical enterprise than people typically assume. Mm. It's not, as it were, a kind of autistic endeavor of calculating pure diamond-cutting saws, as Wittgenstein described it as a kind of crystalline chamber that everything happens in one of the same way. But it's rather a way of sort of looking through that mirror to something that shines from beyond it, and um, to the sort of higher and heavenly realities that radiate through the various crystalline chambers by which we we um, capture our formal world. Yeah, and I think it it gets to the heart of what I think of as sort of one of those classic first year in seminary questions, you know, when seminarians are being exposed to origin for the first time, and as they learn about his system, you know, they might say, what? So he thinks just by reading, you know, just by reading and interpreting the Bible, all of these, you know, this spiritual transformation is going to happen, like all this is going to happen just by reading and thinking. And um you know, I think Origen's rejoinder to that would be how bold of you to think that the process of logic and of reading and interpreting is not in and of itself a kind of formative work. 
that there is any just reading or just thinking that is not somehow linked to our formation as individuals in the world around us. Yes, a... one of the great themes that comes out over and over again in Origin is the is the spiritual perfection of the soul that is the guide to the reading of scripture. So very famously in the prologue to the commentary on the Song of Songs, he he advises no one who is not spiritually mature should ever read the book of mm -hmm. the Song of Songs because yes. you'll be tempted yeah. to think of it in a purely corporeal way, a sensuous way, rather than thinking of the higher spiritual realities behind it. Mm -hmm. And he also suggests that the the way in which we can find our way to understand scripture must also be continuous with and perfected by the the striving of the Christian life to imitate Christ and the saints. It's not as though we can, um, for instance, like in a, a sort of Yale uh, critical reading seminar on Derrida, that we can just go through and sort of analyze all the tropes and the themes and the, and the sort of plot points and find out the meaning of scripture. He thinks that it's something that 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 calls upon us and that that we have to answer to in a personal way we're to have within our minds and our hearts a way of thinking seriously about the message and what it could mean for us and how it could transform us. That if we're not transformed by it, then there's no way which our reading will be transformed and we'll be able to see, as it were, the the, the true message that, that that shines through the sort of bare and naked text. Mm -hmm. And and yeah. partly for that reason, um, I just want to emphasize that that um, Origen's method of reading is not separate from what he calls the hodos or the way of Christian life. Um, yes. In fact, yes. it's it's arguably a kind of um, schematic elaboration of something that has to be continuous with the entire life of the Christian community and the life of the individual striving to live like the saints. And it's also one that that is recommended alongside manuals of mortification and of, of thesis to find a way to change oneself to be more perfect by, by renouncing the, the lures of the flesh and to become more spiritual in character. And much of Origen's influence, that some of which is now lost to us because of the loss of his text and the mm -hmm. loss of the communities that, that, that harbored them, was in early Christian monasticism, both in Egypt and later in Palestine. Mm -hmm. And it was amongst these groups that, that Originism had its greatest impact. And arguably, um, there's a hidden and, 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 and no longer discoverable influence that Origen had on the development of early Christian monasticism that gave birth to the Desert Fathers and the Benedictine movement that later came to the Latin West. Mm -hmm. His influence is, um, is very deep and isn't entirely traceable anymore, which is a tragedy. I did, um, Professor Hager, I just wanted to ask one clarifying question. As you were describing the Trinitarian structure of logic, there were a couple of times where you differentiated between the sun and the logos. You would say things like, you know, this truth is mediated, I think you said sort of by the sun through the logos, or vice versa. Can you sort of talk about the differentiation between logos and sun in Origen's thought? Yes. So early on in the uh, in Christian theology, for instance, with Justin Martyr, and then to a lesser extent in his successors in um, Irenaeus, that there tends to be a kind of... Um, synonymy between speaking of the Son and the Logos. And of course, this is very much inspired by the prologue to the Gospel of John. And there's an ambiguity as to what sense the Logos is identifiable with the Son, or in what sense it is an attribute of the Son. Origen, I think, comes down very decisively in favor of saying that the Logos is an attribute of the Son, that mm -hmm. it is not the name, the proper name of the Son. The proper name of the Son is Christ. And we have many, many other names that are named of Christ in Scripture. And the Logos is one of them, one of the foremost ones, but not by, by any means the, the um, exhaustive or only one. And mm -hmm. when he presents the names of Christ or the attributes of Christ, which he calls the epinoia, the, the sort of intentional aspects of Christ, he mm -hmm. presents a series of different sequences. Um, one he presents in, in On First Principles, On First Principles 1, 2, uh, when he presents, um, when he introduces the Son. And then the second is in the commentary on the Gospel of John. Now, in 
on first principles, he gives the sequence of epinoia as Sophia, Logos, Zoe, Aletheia, and Hodos. And Hodos is not entirely known as a proper um, epinoia, but it does appear sort of in that list. Mm-hmm. Now, in the Gospel of Commentary in the Gospel of John, he gives, I think, 10 different epinoia, some of which repeat, some of which are different. I argue that there's a reason why he does this. I argue that the list of the epinoia in the Ontras principles is meant to be the epinoia that applies specifically to the Son as absolutely incorporeal prior to the creation of the world and the incarnation, or in a way that's not dependent upon and not announced in relation to the incarnate Christ. Uh, I argue that the, in the Gospel of John, that he's drawing specifically upon what in the Gospel of John, Jesus as the incarnate Christ says about himself. Mm-hmm. So these are, as it were, two different perspectives. Now, the reason why they overlap in a way is because they're naming the same person, namely the Son, but they're naming mm-hmm. it from two different vantage points, one from a sort of heavenly vantage point, the other from an earthly vantage point. Um, now, that being said, the, the key to understanding Origins metaphysics is, in many ways, to understand two circuits of operations. One is the divine hypostasis, of which the Father can be called hypostases only analogically in relation to the Son, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or as Origen names them in Ontra's Principles, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, the circuit of the epinoia, or the attributes, which are Sophia, Logos, Zoe, um, Aletheia, and Hodos, or uh, wisdom, word, life, truth, and way. And the most important of these, of course, are Sophia and Logos, that is wisdom and word. And Origen says very little about how we're meant to understand them, but his words are very telling. He says that Sophia is the beginning of all things. It's that from which, as it were, um, we become that that we can come, or the possibility of interpreting the meaning of scripture and and, and God takes its flight, and from which everything else seems to come to an end. So it, it appears to be both the beginning and end of this entire circuit. And the mm-hmm. second is he says that the logos is that which interprets and discloses the meaning of Sophia. It's mm-hmm. by which we come to know the hidden wisdom of God. Now, the way that I understand this is that the logos obviously has a privileged role to play in the creation of the world here in the Gospel of John. What mm-hmm. I interpret this to mean is that is that Logos is, is more partial than wisdom or than mm-hmm. Sophia. That it's a way in which we um that 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 the world is created in which we can come to know some aspect of it in various ways through various various movements of thought. And this can be conceived in a more limited sense as um the constructions of language or of a simulated argument or finite inferences. But they didn't seem to have the comprehensive and um principle of purpose and and finality and um, firstness of of wisdom. So I think this is something that's that's open to interpretation, and I know that people have argued about for a very long time, but the, the key point is to understand that, that there's a kind of secondarity to the Logos. That means that it can't be exhaustively explanatory of who the Son is, or also um, simply be the name of the Son itself. That is, it's a way of interpreting and giving voice to, communicating and creating that of which the Son is, and mm-hmm. also to understanding how we could come to know the Son as that has been communicated to us. Yeah. So there's a kind of reflection upon the divine attributes and names of which Logos is one, and certainly a yes. privilege and an important one, um, but not taken as as the proper name. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and it wouldn't be a proper name. It would be quite inconceivable to say that as it were word was the sun. That would be um both grammatically and, and uh, sort of philosophically inept. Right. Yeah. Instead of saying sort of you know, you know, the sun is word insofar as the sun is that principle of communication by which, you know, the divine word, let there be light, is, you know, create, like creates, right? Like creation is sort of spoken through a word. 
and also that communicative principle ultimately through which we come to know divine wisdom. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as we as we talk about um, as we talk about this, you know, the importance of word and language. I'm curious about um, a couple of things that we've talked about on this podcast. You know, we've already um, we've already mentioned several times this kind of pressure in. Um, I mean, it's, I think it's especially tr- strong starting in the 20th century with the rise of the analytic school of philosophy. But as you point out, you know, in many ways, this goes back much further than that to sort of ground logic in these kind of mathematical formalisms that just are. There's a kind of brute facticity to them. Um, and you, you know, you really think that this is a mistake. And in, in um, some of your documents that you sent to me, you said that it, in fact, it takes the living word out of logic and so on, and also takes God out of logic. And I'm, you know, we've talked a little bit about Origen's um, hermeneutics and his allegorical approach to so many of the scriptures, which, of course, is one of the ways in which he is most influential and most uh, controversial. And I wonder if there is a kind of analogy um, and more than a coincidental analogy between the two in as much as Origen wants to move beyond this sort of brute fact approach of, you know, well, the Bible said that X happened this way, so it must have happened exactly like that. Um, but there's also, you know, at least on my reading of Origen, um, you know, there, there's not a sort of replacement of that literal facticity with a kind of allegorical facticity that says, well, whenever you read for example, the temple, you interpret that as the human heart. Like, you know, that's the interpretation he uses when he's talking about the cleansing of the temple narratives, but he doesn't say that is always what the word temple means whenever you read it in the Mm. Bible. There is this kind of living um, approach to it. And I, you know, that I think is, is bound up with what you said about the ways in which, you know, the process of interpreting scripture is not separate from the process of spiritual perfection and assumes a kind of ascetical quest towards God. And I, I wonder if, you know, first of all, if, if you think that general picture sounds about right, um, and also if you think there might be some, that, that, that this might be an analogy um, between the use of logic and the way that the scriptures are interpreted. Oh, yeah, I believe so. We might imagine that it would be very simple to read the Bible if only every word had one of the same meaning and that there were a kind of Wittgensteinian picture that it gave to our mind that were the same for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so we would be able to, as it were, transparently understand every statement in scripture. But the complexity, of course, arises both from the meaning of the words, which are quite ancient and often troublesome to understand, as well as the the sequence of the stories and the apparently convoluted and conflicting messages that appear throughout the Gospels. And there's many of these, for instance, there are episodes that appear twice in the Gospels, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New, there are things that appear to be um, defy human reason, such, for instance, like the, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, and many mm-hmm. others. Miracles probably being the first, the best example of this. In all of these occasions, I believe that, as Origen had also argued, that these are not simply mistakes. These are points at which, as we're, we're told that we need to think differently about them. So Origen argued that the, the appearance of mistakes or of um, impossibilities in Scripture were a call for the more careful reader to search for a higher interpretation of them such that we can understand them differently and better. And if this is so, and it's so not just in scripture, but arguably in any text that has ambiguities or conflicts, then it requires that we have to think creatively about what we're reading and think creatively both in their times and with our times and in ways that that change over time. And 
This means then that the, the you might say the circuit of meaning that is given in any statement, in any story, becomes a question for us and is not something that can be settled in advance. It can't be settled by any interpretive schema or any formula of of, of, of direct reference or grammar or mathematical logic or inference. And for all these reasons, we can't imagine that there's any kind of a priori scaffolding, any kind of crystalline form that we can we can mold the meaning of scripture in. Rather, it's not something that we can hand over to someone else, some kind of machine that stands apart from us, but it's rather a question for us in our lives and the whole community that continues to interpret it. And in a way, I feel like this is the most humane vision of scripture, the most one that's most mm -hmm. radically humanist and international and, and Christian, because without that, we would we would, we would have a, a way of thinking about the meaning of that God has shown to us that is not our meaning, but it's something that is, is given over to another, given over to some kind of machine process of, of, of formulating and capturing what could and should be said about all of these texts in advance. And of course, that would make it very simple, but our lives aren't simple. They're very complex and require this constant tension and negotiation of, of new circumstances that elicits both our creativity and our freedom. And I think also that's the dignity of man and interpreting scripture ever afterwards. Mm -hmm. So um, just one statement about this. There was a, a search in the early modern era that coincided with the controversy about the literal interpretation of scripture mm -hmm. during the Protestant Reformation after the Council of Trent for a formal understanding of the sequence of the modes of reading origins on first principles. So in origin book four, four, he presents a a way of reading scripture, which is arguably an elaboration of the, the way of the Christian life, the photos. And um, the, the sequence of this has been debated and there's multiple sort of occasions where Origen both um, presents this and also um, deviates from his use of it. But the, the most general way of thinking about it is that he first presents a literal representation of what scripture says. And in this, he often draws upon his deep linguistic understanding and his, the, um, the uh, hexapla, which is a concordance mm -hmm. of the scripture in multiple languages and understanding of what he knows about the historical context, all things that would be reminiscent to contemporary biblical scholarship. And thereafter, he, he says that at certain points in reading scripture, we come to these, these, um, these enigmas that can't easily be understood according to a literal meaning. Like they don't just present themselves in a way that makes sense to us. And so once he comes to these enigmas, he has to look for a higher other interpretation, which is called, which is often described as allegory. And allegory in origins doesn't mean allegory in the sense of, um, for instance, Alice in Wonderland. It's not as we're, we're fantasizing something that is not there. For origin, allegory is a way of, of, of looking for that which is higher that is shown through the meaning of the text itself. It's what is meant to be understood, but yet for which we can't understand it unless we step apart from its barren literal representation of a kind of embodied sense that gives to us. But he thinks that all of these allegorical interpretations, of which there are many, and which oftentimes he pursues at great length, uh, looking at many different ways of thinking about them, all of them sort of circle around the higher spiritual meaning that is meant to be communicated by the divine logos through scripture. And that spiritual meaning can't just be grasped, as I said, in a kind of Yale, Derrida, deconstruction um, analysis. It's not something that you can simply sort of itemize all of the allegorical interpretations. Rather, he thinks that you have to be able to select which among those serve the Christian life. Now, this is very important because it means then that that even if you could, as it were, find the plenitude of meaning um, in a kind of computational way, just by sort of unpacking the various, the various sort of semantic implications of scripture, you wouldn't, for that reason, have a basis for selecting which of those should be privileged one over the other. Mm -hmm. For origin, the way of privileging is ultimately those that are commensurate with the entire edifice of Christian theology systematically, and as that system is always inspired by and in service to the perfection of the Christian life. And it's for that reason that he has a very sort of corporate, a very um, ecclesial, and ultimately a, a very um, interior mystical and um, and um, 
striving for perfection of the Christian life as the call and purpose of the interpretation of Scripture. And I think without that, um, all of this would collapse. There's no purely formal method. There's no there's no way of, as it were, um, objectifying the search for the meaning of Scripture. It's something, it's something that is someone else's task, but not my own. Yeah. I'm so glad you, you said that. I'm um, thinking about a paper I gave not too long ago in which I was trying to draw some comparisons between Origen's method of allegorical interpretation and good um, good psychotherapy and good pastoral care. And, you know, part of what I was, um, part of what I was attempting to argue there was that just at, like, just as, you know, for Origen in some ways, you know, the scriptures and the whole Christian life is both the text to be interpreted and the key to interpret it, right? They're not separate from each other. So too, when we're attempting to care for a human person, you know, we, they provide both the content of what we're attempting to interpret, understand, and help, mm. and also the key. Um, and one of the questions that I got, um, which I think is inevitable when these questions of allegory come up in the modern day, is, well, what are the limits on allegory, right? Um, how, do you, how do you guard against just sort of free associating and ultimately giving us a meaning that tells us more about you than it does about whatever you're trying to interpret, be that the Bible, be that another person? And I mean, there, you know, there are, um, there are guardrails for allegorical interpretation in the ancient world and today. But, you know, I do wonder if part of what you're saying there is that that invitation to a higher spiritual meaning is precisely the invitation to a kind of freedom, um, such that it may not be possible to narrow things down to one correct interpretation. And, you know, you can embrace that, you can reject it, but ultimately the lives we live as human beings striving for God, that's precisely the situation we find ourselves in, in which you know, the fluidity and the ambiguity and just the, the polysimous nature of, you know, the texts and the lives that we lead. Like that's that's the world in which we live for better or for worse. Absolutely. Yes. And it's important to see that our interpretations are answerable to the lives that we wish to live. Mm -hmm. I think that for origin, more of the, the guardrails that you're referring to are ones that arise from our the way that we gather together our interpretations of scripture for a way of expounding and teaching and understanding the message of Christ in theology. And specifically, what I've argued in my dissertation is that the the reflection upon from the literal to the allegorical that would ostensibly appear to be open-ended, to admit for an infinitude of different interpretations, is restricted in advance by the systematic theological interpretation by which we understand how those hermeneutical archetypes refer to the principles of holy powers and topics of theology. That mm -hmm. is to say that in a, in a more modern sense, you might say that one cannot interpret scripture without an understanding of doctrine. That is, doctrine informs what the, you might say, hermeneutical possibilities of scripture can be. Yeah. So when um, we read, for instance, about the, 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 the word who was God and was with God, we, we, we shouldn't assume, as, as it were, that as the Valentinians understood this, that it was a kind of 12th aeon that prescinded from the mm -hmm. from the sort of primordial coupling of the of the heavenly powers but rather we following the apologists following origin following the council of nicaea we have we have ways in which this has been defined and taught and also ways in which we can have a kind of systematic coherence to the various attributes that are applied to christ and what they could mean in relation to him and to us and for this reason we have we have a background assumption about what um could be a viable meaning that would be coherent with other modes of interpretation. And so I think that um, origins in the effort is sort of not just to, as it were, present an plenitude of options for 
interpretation. He certainly explores them at great with a great variety and tenacity and boldness. But he's also in, ultimately, I think, interested in gathering up those interpretations into a systematic vision of what Christian theology could and should be. And as a research project for subsequent generations of Christian interpreters, um, one of the great um, and enduring themes of Origins writing that was seized upon by Arnaud de Lubac, by the Leonese Jesuits, and by the Second Vatican Council was that he recommends this as something that is for which even the interpreter must be inspired by the Holy Spirit. It must be mm-hmm. continuous mm-hmm. with the spirit of revelation. It must um, use their interpretive powers and answerable to the spirit and the logos of Christ. And for that reason also that subsequent generations will interrogate these questions over and over again and will look to develop the interior meaning of them in more profound ways that he himself could have anticipated. Mm-hmm. So he sees yeah. this as an open project and one for which, as it were, there's a concurrent development both of scriptural exegesis and of systematic theology, whereby the system provides the guardrails and gives us a guidance for how we should interpret scripture. And speaking of that openness and that development, as as you've said, and we've mentioned on this podcast multiple times, Origen is cited by every party in, you know, in, in the controversies surrounding the Council of Nicaea, by, um, the, by the Eusebii, by Arius himself, by the Cappadocians. Um, and so in many ways, you know, as you say, there are themes in his theology that can sort of develop in either pro or anti-Nicene directions. Um, Origen winds up on the books, of course, as a heretic in the judgment of the church, in part because of that association with Arius and with sub- subordinationist frameworks. Um, do, you, do you feel like that's a fair categorization of Origen? That Origen's a heretic? Well, I, I tend to think that almost all of the church fathers would be considered heretics by later standards, including St. Sure. Paul. Um, up until the present day. So in that regard, if Origen is just a heretic 400 years after his, or 300 years after his death, I, I, I don't know that um, it, it, it's such a, a, a grave um, slide against his legacy. But what we can sure. say is that, that Origen was, his teachings were con- repeatedly contested both in his time and afterwards. There's arguably three stages to the Originist controversy, both in his lifetime and then what they call the first and second Originist crises, the first culminating in a condemnation at a local synod in Alexandria in, in 400 AD, and the second culminating at the second Council, Council of Constantinople in um, I think 556 AD. And there have been attempts, most notably by Henri Cruzel, to exonerate Origen from these criticisms. And the argument that has been made is um, both exegetically and, and procedurally, they'll say um, procedurally that that the fixation of Origen's name to the condemnations was irregular, that it was added by a secretary, not by the general council, mm-hmm. and that it was ratified, but not in a way that it gathered the bishops of the church, and so it can't be considered canonical. And it was on this basis that I believe Henri de Lubach had petitioned to, mm-hmm. not only to exonerate Origen, but also to make him a doctor of the church, which mm-hmm. hasn't yet happened, but um, hypothetically could happen. I, I, ho- I hope for the day when Origen will be recognized as a, not as a martyr, but as a confessor, because he died under torture, mm-hmm. um, yes. or shortly thereafter, because of torture. Now, um, exegetically, I think what we can say more precisely is that even from Origen's extant text, it's one thing to say, for instance, that we don't have the texts where Origen could have been considered heretical or for which the condemnations are meant to refer. But it's another thing to say that even from the extant texts that we have, of which we don't know how many they are, but they may be something like maybe over 20%, that there are points in which Origen will argue deliberately against some of the points at which he was accused for. And if that's the case, then it seems what's happening, and, and the majority scholarly opinion, I believe, now attests to this, that the condemnations are not just about origin, they're about the originists. And the originists are 300 years of interpretations of origin that grew up amongst the, the monastics of Egypt and Palestine, some of which were considerably less sophisticated in origin, and some of which emphasized one aspect of this thought at the expense of another. 
And um, we can look at two things in particular to see how this developed and whose writings remain extant. One is Evagrius Pontus, and the other is um, Stephen Barson Daly. And both of them have a radical new interpretation of Origen, which, although in some respects is reminiscent of Origen, you can hear echoes of him, and it's certainly inspired by him, is in many respects systematically at, at odds with the vision that Origen is presenting. So what I think has happened is actually that we have preserved the Orthodox vision of Origen. We've preserved the one that we think gives life to the church, and we've, we've celebrated that. And we celebrated it subsequently amongst the Cappadocians and amongst, for instance, Dionysius, the Maximus Confessor, who we say as our, our harbingers of the light of Christian theology. But we've condemned the part of Origen that was radicalized by some of his successors who we, we don't consider to represent that vision. And I, I think that's the legacy of Origen. I don't think we should say that, that Origen should be, as it were, condemned with the, the lesser or the, the, the more fabulous of his interpreters whose legacy has uh, hasn't borne fruit. But while we should see the fruit that Origen's thought has borne in the church generation after generation and see that as what he can teach us. And it's partly for that reason that I think that the the rereading of Origen, the rethinking of his legacy, uh, for instance, there was a there was a modern theology issue that came out two years ago called Rethinking Origen. And mm -hmm. the attempt to represent Origen's thought um, in answer to the historic condemnation, but also in answer to modern philosophy, which I've characterized as neo-Originism, I think this is uh, the, the proper way of approaching it, because it says that Origen may have said things and may have suggested things that later became considered heretical and for which he and his successors were condemned. And that's an indubitable fact of the church history. But it's not a way of foreclosing the hermeneutical possibilities that he presents to us, nor the gift of his learning and his ingenuity and his life as a whole that he showed as witness to the possibility of interpreting the Christian message and living out the Christian life. And I feel like um, if we're to be faithful to Origen's spirit rather than perhaps to the letter of himself or to his successors or even to the diesel condemnations, we ought to look to that first. Hmm. Dare I say, if we were to enter into the allegorical interpretation of Origen himself? Very true. Yes, I've recommended that explicitly in the second chapter of my dissertation, that um, we need not just a spiritual interpretation of scripture, we need a spiritual interpretation of church history, and we need a spiritual interpretation of the great figures of church history, in particular Origen of Alexandria. And I feel like um, Henri Newman and, uh, and uh, Henri de Lubac um, would, uh, would both recommend this as well. And um, I feel like that's, um, the you might say, the, the more charitable way more Christian way of, of looking back to the, the voices from the past. I can't help, um, I'm about to commit the cardinal sin on an ancient history podcast and reveal my inner medievalist, but I can't help but think about um, some comparisons to Meister Eckhart, who was escaped condemnation for heresy by the skin of his teeth. He died before the trial could, could be completed. Oh, yes. Um, but, you know, if you read the condemnations of his thought, you know, um, it'll list 26 points they say he taught that's heretical. And, you know, point number one will be, well, Eckhart teaches that creatures are nothing and God is everything. And then point number 13, they'll say, well, Eckhart teaches that God is nothing and creatures are everything. And, you know, there's there's a capaciousness in um, in thought with many of the great figures of the church, such that, you know, if you if you pick out individual passages you can find something, you know, that's that's objectionable by later standards. And I mean, you can certainly do that with Origin. I mean, I think it's I think it's an on first principles. It might be another work, but you know, he'll say things like the spirit is as far beneath the sun as creation is beneath the spirit. Um, oh yes, that you know, so it, it's there, and yet there's also like a real resistance to certain forms of um, of anti Nicene thought that we find as well. So um, a complicated thinker, a very rich one. And um, I think you've given us a lot of wonderful reasons in this interview 
as to why he is still very much worth engaging with today. Um, so thank you very much, Professor Haker, for your time. Thank you very much for your questions. It's been a great pleasure, and I hope that all that we've discussed today will give life to the reading of Origen and Church Fathers and, yes, hopefully renew their thought and spirit for today. Amen. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.